Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Hello, Racine Bible Church. I miss you. I love you, and I miss you. I thought I would be there with you today. We saw that weather coming in. We kept wondering, should we change our flight? What's going to get canceled, and what isn't? And we prayed and prayed, and here we are, stuck here, and there you are there, and uh, you are in my heart. I hope you know that there is nobody, there's no place that I'd rather preach than right there at 12505 Spring Street, and there's nobody to whom I'd rather preach than you all. I just uh, love you so much. And I know that God has a blessing for us and God has something good for us this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1. And so let's pray and get into the word of God together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thought we'd be together today physically. And though we aren't together physically, I thank you that I have no doubt that I am with those folks spiritually and even emotionally, that they are in my heart. I know that Amy and I are in their heart. They have loved us so well. We love them. We pray, Lord, for your blessing now upon the preaching of your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, divine, that you would that, that, that you would dive into our hearts and cut deep with your word between joint and marrow, between soul and spirit, that we might be changed by your grace and for your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look today just at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, but we want to start in Matthew 16 because what Peter says here uh, really shows that he didn't understand salvation. He was confused about salvation, but then later the penny dropped and he began to understand it. And I think 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 will make more sense if you see how Peter didn't understand salvation at the beginning. So if you look with me at Matthew chapter 16, turn to Matthew 16, and I'll show you where Peter didn't understand salvation and glory and how the grace was going to be ours through what Jesus Christ was going to do. If you're with me here in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Hear that, Racine Bible Church. You, Racine Bible Church, are a project that Jesus has personally invested his power in. And when Jesus begins a project, there is no obstacle, either earthly or spiritual or demonic. There is no obstacle and no opposition that will stop Jesus' work. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He says, to, he says I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed 
and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Well, Peter did not get it. Peter just didn't get it. Of course not. Did Peter love Jesus? Yes. Did Peter want Jesus to be glorified? Yes. But did Peter try to get in the way of the suffering that preceded the glory? Yes. This was an arrogant misunderstanding on Peter's part. And Peter didn't become disabused of this misunderstanding overnight. In fact, let me show you one more place in Matthew before we get to 1 Peter. If you flip ahead with me to Matthew 26, Matthew 26, where we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in Matthew 26, when the, the, the Lord is suffering and the Lord is praying, and then uh, um, Judas finally comes to, uh, to, to betray Jesus. And if you look with me at Matthew 26 and pick it up with me in verse 47, in verse 47, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you come to do. And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Church, did you hear that question Jesus asked in verse 54? How then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So Jesus is going to get arrested. Peter, does he want Jesus to be glorified? Yes. Does he love Jesus? Yes. But does he pull out his sword to stop Jesus from going to the cross and suffering? Again, yes, this is Peter's arrogant misunderstanding where he wanted the glory, but he wanted to prevent the suffering. And Jesus says, don't pull your sword out, put it away. And Jesus said, I don't even need earthly swords. My father could send me 12 legions of angels to rescue me. But Jesus asked that question in verse 54. How should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And so church, it's from there and the fulfillment of the scriptures that I want to show you how Peter did understand this. And so if you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, that'll be our text this morning, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving, not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you, 
through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter finally grasped the understanding of suffering and the understanding of glory. This is a passage, precious church, where we will understand the authenticity of our gospel message and how it dates back to the prophets, how it dates, how it moves upward heavenly to the angels longing to look into it. And it all centers around the grace, the grace, don't miss that word, the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Peter didn't get it in Matthew 16. Peter didn't get it in Matthew 26. Peter finally got it here. He finally got it here. And notice that salvation, do you see that the key term salvation is in verse nine, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Salvation links your present experience of grace with the prophet's thousands of years ago foretelling of how that grace would come. And salvation links not only your present to the history of the prophets, but salvation links your present to the future glory that is so glorious that the angels themselves long to look at the glories that are ours in Jesus Christ. Church, I want you to contemplate with me this morning from this text that the grace of salvation goes further back than you could ever imagine. And that the grace of salvation goes further forward into the future than you could ever comprehend. And that the grace of salvation bubbles up and almost, uh, almost explodes in ways that angels long to understand the brilliance of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. I want you to go higher up into the gospel. I want the gospel to go deeper down into you because church, there's a glory and a beauty and a majesty and a marvel in the gospel that we'll never get to the bottom of. And First Peter here in 10 and 11 and 12 challenges us with three challenges this morning. Number one, grasp the big picture of suffering and glory. Grasp the big picture of suffering and glory. You see there in verse 11, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Grasp the big picture of suffering and glory. Sufferings now, glories later. First the cross, then the crown. This was the pattern that we saw in Christ's life. And this is the pattern that the New Testament revealed when it showed that Christ was, was beaten and, and was, he was arrested and beaten and he suffered and then he died, but then he rose from the dead and now he's go, going to return in glory. This is the pattern that we should have expected because Jesus himself explained it. At Caesarea Philippi, he, he explained it to the, to the disciples. But not only does the New Testament explain this, Peter is at pains to show to us that the Old Testament explained this. First comes the cross, then comes the crown. And as true as that is, that suffering comes first and then glories come later, this is not just a general principle. Can you think about it like this? The general principle that sufferings come first and then the glories come, if there is such a general principle, it's only true because of what Christ did on the cross 
In other words, the prophets weren't enunciating a general principle about first suffering and then glory. The prophets were talking about a person, the person, the one in whom all of our sin would be taken away and the one in whom we would receive glory. Jesus Christ is himself the end of all prophecy and Jesus Christ is himself the goal of all of history. And the reason that sufferings come first and then glory comes later is because Jesus is the Christ. Church, I want you to see, even from these couple of verses in Peter, that the sufferings of Christ are more meaningful than you'll ever manage to comprehend, and that the glories that are ours in Christ are far vaster and more glorious than you'll ever get to the bottom of. The sufferings and glories of Christ are emphasized by Peter throughout this letter. Why? We've been saying this, haven't we, church, as we're going through 1 Peter. Peter was writing to Christians who had a glorious future promised to them, but who were in present pain. Peter was writing to Christians who had been promised glory, and they had an inheritance that was undefiled and that would never be taken from them, and yet... They were suffering in the present. They were suffering in the present. And the reason they were suffering wasn't just uh, poor health or, or difficult relationships with their in-laws or whatever you may have it. The reason they were suffering was because they were being saved. In other words, it was as Christians that they were being persecuted and that they were suffering. So it's the very salvation and glory that they're promised that they want the most that is causing them the most pain and the most suffering. And I am aware that I am preaching this message to Christians who may suffer more for being Christians this new year than you did the year prior. We don't know what's going to happen in our, in our own little corner of the world and throughout the world globally. But we do know this, that those who suffer in Christ are those who will be glorified in Christ. And we know that the sufferings and glories of Christ were of particular interest to Peter because as a faithful, loving pastor, he, he, he wanted to urge his people, don't, don't give up on Christ and don't you dare compromise to, to get away from the suffering because your immediate suffering has to be seen in light of the ultimate. Christ suffered for me. Therefore, I know that I can suffer a little bit of persecution for him. I hope that I hope that you can get I hope that you can get your arms around that because if you would sort of keep that as the screensaver in your mind, Christ suffered for me. Christ was sinless. Christ did not deserve to suffer. Christ suffered for me. And if Christ suffered for me, sacrificially for my salvation, then surely as a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ, if following Christ costs me this or that or the other thing, I will pay the price without regret. Be ready and understand the big picture of suffering and glory. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in a body like ours is one day going to be, proves something. What does the resurrection of Christ in a body that's like ours is gonna be one day, what does it prove? Well, it proves that 
Jesus Christ received the worst that this world could do to him, and he triumphed and gloried anyway. And church, I'm telling you, if you are in Christ, it may be that you have to receive the worst that this world can do to you. And if you do, I promise you in Christ, you will not only endure it, but you will persevere through it in such a way that your faith, which is more precious than gold, will be shown to redound to the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. First the cross, then the crown. Keep that in your mind. In fact, if, if you're there in verses 10 through 12 in 1 Peter 1, if you just look at the very next verse in verse 13, he says, therefore, prepare your mind. Keep this as the screensaver in your mind that Christ suffered for me. Therefore, I know that I can persevere through sufferings that come to me because of Christ. That's point number one. Grasp the big picture of suffering and glory. Point number two. Continue to search the scripture daily for good news. Point number two, continue to search the scripture daily for good news. And we see this in verse 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. This is, a, this is a wonderful little place, church, where the Bible helps us to get a grasp on what the Bible is and where the Bible itself shows us the inner workings of the Bible. The best way to get a grip on the Bible is to use the Bible to show you how to get a grip on the Bible. And this is, a, this is, this is another place where we have internal evidence in the very New Testament documents that the New Testament authors themselves were, were cognizant of this fact. The prophets of the Old Testament were inspired by the Holy Spirit to give us authoritative truth. And the New Testament apostles like Peter have that exact same authority and that exact same inspirational uh, miracle happening through the Holy Spirit. This shows us that the New Testament documents are right alongside the Old Testament prophetic documents with, with uh, authority, clarity, sufficiency, some mystery because they didn't quite understand how it was all going to work, but everything that they were saying was true and nurturing for the people in the, it, that the prophets originally wrote to and then ultimately for us because it says that they ultimately revealed the grace that we all receive. How does the Bible work? The Bible works in large part because of a, a, dual, a dual authorship. There is a human author Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, Peter, the New Testament apostle. There's a human author, but there is also always a divine author. And the human author has an intent and a meaning. And the human author sees what he sees accurately and truly. But only the divine author sees the whole scope and sequence of all 66 books and how they all fit together in God's, you know, massive plan for the eons and the ages. At the same time, every human author writes truly and every human author has an intent and an understanding about what he's writing. So in other words, this doesn't mean, I don't want you to think that this means uh, Isaiah meant one thing, but the Holy Spirit meant something else, and Isaiah had no idea the significance of what he was writing. I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that's what this is showing us. Isaiah had an intent, 
And Isaiah's intent was true. And Isaiah's prophecy didn't magically become something else later when it was fulfilled. Isaiah knew what he was writing and he wrote it carefully. And yet there was a, there was a timing and a gap between the promise and the fulfillment that Isaiah could only wonder at and couldn't fully see because only the Spirit of God saw that whole scope and that whole plan. So in other words, just to, just to repeat, to clarify this, uh, I, I don't take and I don't want you to take 1 Peter 1 verses 10 and 11 to mean that the Old Testament prophets spoke better than they knew in that they had no idea what, what they were talking about and, and the Holy Spirit just made it mean something good. The Old Testament prophets spoke about the coming Messiah and they didn't fully understand what time and, and, and in what way their messages would be fulfilled. But they had an understanding, an accurate understanding, just not the fullness of understanding. And so you see here the, the, the challenge we have to, you see in verse 10, inquire carefully and search and inquire carefully. Does the Bible ever make you want to search and inquire carefully? Or let me ask you another question, and this, uh, this may seem a little disrespectful to the Bible, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to the Bible. So the, the respectful way to say it is, does the Bible sometimes, sometimes make you want to slow down and really search carefully? And I hope the answer to that is yes. But the underside way of saying it is, are there other passages in the Bible that make you want to speed up and hit fast forward? Like the genealogies, like the stuff in there that you're not sure why it's in there. We've gone through a good bit of the genealogies in our Genesis study. I trust that you're enjoying your time in your ABF. ABF stands for Adult Bible Fellowship. Everybody who comes to RBC got to be in corporate worship to sing, to receive the preaching of the word. And you got to be in ABF for those shared relationships and that mutual interaction that we have in Bible study and applying it. And, and as we go through Genesis verse by verse by verse by verse, we encounter all of these genealogies. When you open up the New Testament, which is the the the, the wonderful the, the most really the, the most wonderful part of the most wonderful book is the New Testament and the very first chapter of the New Testament, I dare to say, makes you want to hit fast forward because it doesn't strike most people as dynamic or interesting because it's just a long list of names that are hard to pronounce. It's another genealogy. Why is that? Well, it's crucial to the story. And it's actually more interesting and more dynamic than we give it credit for. Because Matthew 1, in the genealogy leading up to Jesus, it validates 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11, that through all of the ages and through the good times and the bad, and when Israel was happy in her land and listening to her prophets and obeying the Lord, and when Israel was exiled out of her land and ignoring the Lord and disobeying, that God responded in all of that and through all of that in ways that he always kept his promise. Through it all, God managed, directed, protected, intervened, and orchestrated, orchestrated and accomplished his great purpose. God keeps his promises every single one of them. 
And the circumstances behind the genealogies show us that circumstances couldn't be more staked against the fulfillment of God's promises. In other words, we people did everything we could to ruin God's plan, and still God accomplished his plan. Still, God accomplished his plan. Not one of his words has failed and not one of his words ever will. Oh, church, trust the Bible. Even the crispy, hard to understand parts of the Bible, trust it and believe it. It is so good and it's so important to dig into that. So I just, I, I want to challenge you not to fast forward when you always want to hit fast forward through those genealogies. Maybe I could explain it like this. I was, I was cutting an avocado the other day and, uh, this avocado that I cut into, I, I can feel it, you know, know if it's ripe or not. It was the right time to cut into it. I knew it was going to be too hard, too soft. It felt just right. But when I cut into it, I, I'm telling you, this avocado had the, the biggest pit of any avocado that I've ever cut into. I got like a quarter inch of good green avocado flesh. And then all the rest was just huge brown pit. And uh, I'm just saying... It, I know that if, if we're honest, most of us, many of us, maybe all of us would admit every now and then we make an effort to study the Bible. And for whatever reason that day, it seems like mostly pit and not a lot of meat. We want something to eat. We want something to nourish us. But sometimes it's, it's historical detail and genealogical data, and we're not sure uh, how or what, you know, what, what, what to make of it. Can I show you again how Peter says in verse 10 that the prophets who were writing the Bible searched and inquired carefully into their very own writings to figure out the, the, the timing of it and the process of it and when the suffering and when the glory. They searched diligently into their own writings to figure this out. How did they search? Well, they didn't have Google. They didn't have chat GPT. They didn't have AI. None of that. What they do, they re-examined their own writings. There's a marvelous example of this in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel 7 and Daniel 9, you see the prophets themselves looking into their own writings. There's a, 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 an example of this, say, like in 2 Timothy 2.15, where it says every one of us should search the scriptures so that we can be an approved workman who needs not be ashamed because we're accurately searching into and understanding the prophetic word. Check this comparison out, church. The writers of the Old Testament who had the Holy Spirit working with them, it says in verse 10 that they searched and inquired carefully. So would you allow me to make a comparison? Are you, are, are you with me on this comparison? Old Testament prophets who themselves were inspired, their writings were inspired, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they couldn't figure it all out easily and they had to work hard at it. What about you? What about me? We, we don't. But we're not conversant with Greek and Hebrew. We're not conversant with the, the historical, you know, to time frames and everything. Whereas the prophets were writing in their own language and in the, it wasn't history to them. It was, it was what they were going through and they had to work hard at it. How much, can we, can we just admit it? How much harder 
Sometimes do we have to work, and it is hard work. It is hard work. We have to search and inquire carefully. And I want to challenge you, church, from this text to not shrink back from searching and inquiring carefully. I don't know why it is, but in a, even in a strong Bible church like ours, I don't know why it is, but I know that it is, that sometimes careful, detailed Bible study gets a bad rap. It's like... Either you're a Bible nerd who really studies the Bible hard, or you just get out there and start loving people and doing good things. Well, why on earth would we tear apart what God has said should never be torn asunder? The only way we know how to love people and do good things is because we've learned that from the scripture. So keep them both together. If our mission and vision is making and training disciples who make and train disciples, when Jesus told us what it means to make and train a disciple, he said the definition of making and training a disciple is teaching that disciple to understand and obey everything that Jesus has revealed in this book, the Bible. And so there's never a place to downplay the importance of hard, diligent, faithful Bible study. No, no, no place at all. This is the absolute importance of Scripture. How important is Scripture? I think about this often, and it's funny. I'm thinking about it today, even though we're physically separated, and I'm giving this, this uh, sermon in a way that I really don't prefer to through, you know, a, a attenuated media. But I think about this every Sunday when I'm there with the people that I love, that gathered in this room uh, are great needs, great needs. There are needy people gathered in this room. And the pastor who opens up the Bible in front of them, the pastor does not know how to meet every one of those needs. And if I could talk about the congregation, the needy congregation, you all, this is also true. The needy people in the congregation do not understand what their needs are or how to meet them. And if the pastor doesn't understand it fully and the people don't understand it fully, what gives us any chance that those needs are going to be met? And this is it, isn't it? The Spirit of God and only the Spirit of God searches and understands each and every one of those needs. And that same Spirit of God has given the, the, the remedy, the answers, the balm, the healing right here. He's given us all that we need in this book. And he requires of us that we search it diligently and carefully to stick with it. And I want to encourage you to do that this new year. Get into a strong study of the Bible and, 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 and don't, back, don't back off from it. I, I, I would love to, to give you that challenge this year. I, I just love it when through the preaching ministry, I mention an author or a subject or a book and somebody grabs me after the service or sends me an email on Monday and says, you mentioned, what was that book you mentioned? I want to get it. I just, I love putting good resources into people's hands. I got an email and this is, this is not unusual, just uh, 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 maybe two months ago from a, a leader in our church. And his email to me was just, hey, uh, I've realized that I don't know enough about this particular area of Christian theology. 
Could, could you meet with me and help me with it? Or could you point me to some resources? Because I want to take a few weeks and shore up my knowledge in this particular area. That I, I love that. I love that. That's what we've always got to be doing. Didn't, didn't the Apostle Paul write to Timothy and say, let your progress be evident to all, that you're growing in your knowledge of the scriptures and in your ability to apply them in your own life and in the lives of others. So I want you, especially this new year, to to be searching the scripture every day, to be continuing to search the scriptures daily for good news. That's the second point. And then our third and final point is this, rely on and rejoice in the greatness of the grace that is ours. Rely on and rejoice in the greatness of the grace that is ours. You see, verse 10 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired. And then it says in verse 12, it was revealed to those prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Things into which angels long to look. The grace, the grace that has been given to us is that thing, so to speak, that angels long to look into. The angels celebrate, don't they? The, the cherubim and the seraphim celebrate the holiness of God. The angels saw the, the exodus, the, 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 the feeding of the 5,000. There are a lot of things that the angels witnessed and saw that they have a better insight into than we do. But what the angels long to look into is the grace. And what it says in verse 10, would you hear this personally? Would you hear this? The grace that was to be yours, yours. I think we can summarize the, the, the purpose of this paragraph in 1 Peter 1 is that we, that you would appreciate the greatness of the grace that is yours in Christ. Because if you appreciate the greatness of the grace that's yours in Christ, then you can endure hardship. And if, heart, and if following Christ leads to hardship, you will say, I love Christ so much, bring on the hardship. I'm not going to let go of Christ in order to wiggle out of a little bit of hardship because Christ has given me more grace than I could ever, than I could have ever asked for. And he gave it to me at such, at such cost to himself that he, that he gave himself up for me. You see, the blessings that we have, Peter says, are greater than the blessings that the Old Testament prophets had because they didn't see the sufferings and the glories that we have. And they're greater than even the angels can have or comprehend. This whole paragraph carries such a strong flavor of the, the, the privileged position that we are in as new covenant believers this side of the cross. We, we are in such a privileged position and Peter knows that we're going to be persecuted for our Christian faith. And yet he says, yet he says, the Old Testament prophets would have wished that they could flip places with you to see the, the, the suffering and the glory of Christ. It was long ago foretold, but they were prophesying for your benefit, the grace that would be yours. And he says in verse 12, they weren't serving themselves, but you. Though this world may think that Christians are insignificant 
and should be persecuted. And this world does think that Christians are insignificant and should be persecuted. The angels think that Christians are the most amazing recipients of the most amazing thing in the universe, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And though the struggling believers to whom Peter was writing would wake up and and they would know they were headed for more hardship today than they received yesterday, but he wants them to know that with that hardship and with that suffering comes this privilege of receiving God's grace and ultimately being received up into God's glory. Lay out the greatness of the grace as a counterbalance to the cost of following Christ, the persecution that you receive, the greatness of the grace. Church, don't miss the sweetness of that word grace. What is grace? Grace is God's forgiveness. Grace is love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Grace is God loving the unlovely in such a way that he makes them lovely. Grace is God washing our sins away and God not only sort of leaving us new and clean, but God washing our sins away and then God giving us the best robe and then God giving us a ring, a wedding ring, as it were, proving that he's pledged his forever fidelity to us and we've to him. Grace is the sustaining strength of God day by day. Grace is the fact that if I blow it again for the 8,238th time, God's not going to say, I had enough of him. God's going to say, no, he's mine. And I'm giving him more grace and more grace and more grace and more grace. There's nothing better than God's grace. Why is God's grace so good? Well, because if you wake up every day and you measure your life based on your circumstances and how things are going, you're going to be up and down and backwards and forwards. But if you wake up every day and, and, and you say, the grace that was to be mine was delivered to me by Christ's blood and by Christ's cross and by Christ's resurrection and by Christ's ascension and glory. You see, don't let the immediate circumstances uh, guide you through life. Let God's grace guide you through life in such a way that you navigate the shifting circumstances that require wisdom. And Peter's going to talk in chapters two and three about how to apply wisdom in a difficult workplace, in a difficult marriage, all sorts of difficult circumstances require navigating wisdom. But, but, But the engine that drives it is the grace of God, the grace of God. If I look for my comfort in myself and my performance, I'll be up again and down again. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. That is no way to live. But see, if it's grounded in God's grace, unearned favor and mercy that flows from the heart of God to the undeserving, then we can know this, can't we? On my best day, when I work really hard at Bible study, and I also work really hard at actively loving people and I evangelize and I do everything I ought to do on my best day. I haven't earned more of God's love. And hear me, I'm not, I'm not kidding. On your worst day, 
when you sin in such embarrassing ways that you hope nobody in this church ever finds out what you did and what you said because it's so nasty. On your worst days, you have not forfeited one drop of God's unearned love and grace because it's unearned, because it's grace, because it's grace. Oh, what a, what, what, what a wonderful gift we've been given when we were given the grace of God in Jesus Christ. No wonder the angels long to look into it. No wonder it's called the good news that the Holy Spirit and the prophets have given to us and that the angels almost have a holy envy toward that we have received it. Church, don't ever, don't ever, ever move past the greatness of God's grace. And church, don't ever stop carefully inquiring and studying the scriptures. And church, don't ever fail to grasp the big picture of suffering and glory in the ministry of Christ and in the lives of all those who will follow him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to look into your word together. Heavenly Father, you, um, you, you, you certainly exercise the right which you have righteously to change our plans and surprise us. I expected to deliver this sermon uh, in the presence of my brothers and sisters today, and you had uh, other arrangements through weather and through airlines, and yet you've enabled this teaching to, to, to be given through the, through the faithful ministry of uh, Jeremiah and Brennan and others who labor so faithfully, Lord. Thank you for these gifts that you've given us and these faithful servants that have been able to serve you together. Lord, we, um, we struggle when we have plans and, 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 and they don't work out the way <clears throat> that we expect them to, but we know, we know and we remember <clears throat> that all things are in your hand and we trust you and we thank you for forgiving us for the times that we fail. We thank you for giving us new strength for the new opportunities and the new obligations that you give to us. And I do pray, Lord, that these, my precious brothers and sisters, would be overwhelmed by the depth of mercy and grace that they have received. And I pray that we have an eagerness to dive into the scriptures and inquire and search carefully that we might understand them. And I pray that we wouldn't lose sight of the cross coming first and the crown coming later and give us that perseverance to endure the cross and that you will bring us one day soon into the glory of the crown and the presence of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.